What have you, uh, what have you been up to this week, technically speaking? This has been the week of getting caught up on client projects that I've been procrastinating on for, uh, I want to say weeks, but it's actually been months, <laughs> which is just terrible to admit, but uh, that's the way it is. You know, it's just, I've been so busy with, you know, all the RHR stuff that's been coming up and uh, it's just hard to find the time and motivation and energy to, you know, work on side projects too. I mean, they're side projects, like I'm being paid for them. They're contract gigs. It's not like I'm doing them for fun, but even then it's just like at the end of the day, it's like, then you got to do more. It's yeah. 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 Uh, I'm finding as I get older, I just want to do that less and less. Um, what I've found actually works is just deciding like, okay, today it's just going to be a client work day and just putting Roadham Radio aside and, you know, dealing with stuff as it comes up, obviously I'm still there, but like not actively working on it and just saying, okay, I'm self-employed. I can decide how to spend my time. Uh, yeah. RHR is my quote unquote full-time gig, but, uh, I need to allocate time to these other things. And by doing that and having like blocks of time to focus on them on the side projects that, uh, that has helped quite a bit. And that's what I've been doing this week is basically every day. I kind of, I've got two other projects that I'm working on right now. Uh, one is a rails project. One is a Phoenix project and, uh, kind of splitting my time between those two to try to get caught up because they keep pinging me and rightfully so. Like I just, you know, just been kind of out of the loop and not, not being very responsive to their needs. You know, these things, both projects both came up this summer at roughly the same time. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's just been a lot, man, you know. At least it sounds like time boxing is helping a little bit, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's, it's, um, yeah, it's part mental. It's part like just the, uh, you know, building up the stack of the program in your mind and trying to remember where you left things off with people, what their requirements are. You know, I, I take notes during all our calls and stuff, and I have pretty, you know, I've gotten a lot better at that part. But even then, you go and look at your notes, and sometimes you just start to realize that even that is almost too nebulous for, you know, what, it's it's not specific enough to actually, like, make action items out of, out of sort of requirements that you gathered from a call or something. And so um, that's kind of where I've, why I've been procrastinating. It's partly, you know, just the fact that, if I don't know what the next steps are, it's easy to like just brush it off and be like, uh, I don't know, there's nothing to do, right? I know those two things are orthogonal to each other, but that's what it feels like. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so to take a deep dive into those notes, made a, you know, actually made a Kanban, you know, a little board in Notion, started just making concrete tasks for things to accomplish and at least see how far I could get on what I know needs to get done before I have to start asking questions and clarifying things. So I know that's going to happen anyways. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. This is not, this is nothing new. This is it's just, it's just been a struggle for me lately. Yeah. So I, I um, do similar things. I take notes for most of my calls, especially client facing in a notion. So for, for the client that I'm working with right now at metal lab, I have like a notion for that and it's just called boards. So I have a board for, uh, what I need to do a board for stand up things I need to ask to remember to ask about that my team needs answers from. And then I have a board for like design things that I need to follow up with our designer, uh, on. And then I have, um, a database of notes underneath that. So it was all kind of in one spot. Uh, but yeah, I kind of live and die by that. And then yeah, time boxing my calendar. So 30 minutes here to talk design, an hour there for, uh, Jira and merge request, uh, you know, code reviews and stuff and 
and two hours for coding. Like I actually schedule time to my calendar to write code now, which is I'm getting more used to, but it, yeah, it's been really helpful, but it's, you have to be meticulous because if you're not meticulous and you like, you put words down and then the next day you're like, what does that even mean? Like some acronym or, you know, something that you don't necessarily remember the context of, but I've been actually like slowing people down. Like if I'm trying to take notes and they, they brush on, I'll actually be like, can we hold on a minute? I'm like getting this down so that way I can actually pull action items out of this. And then at the top of a, a note I have for a meetings, I just have like a block for action items and I just make to do's and, uh, that's been working for me, but I have to be very forward about it with people like, Hey, stop talking. We need to pause right here so I can get this information down. That's interesting. Yeah. I, um, I kind of took one of your, it wasn't maybe an idea, but it was, uh, I was sort of inspired by hearing you talk about how you interface with clients. So you, you were talking about how at MetaLab, you sort of, um, your job is to interface with the, with the client a lot, right? I mean, you sort of keep them updated and the, 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 um, the feedback cycle there is very active, right? They know exactly where you guys are on the prog- progress of the project and so on, right? Like that, that's a very, the communication is the key part there, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't have access to our JIRA, but I screen share my JIRA with them every day. So, okay. Yeah. So, so what I did was in Notion, I made this board and then I just made it public and then I sent it to the client. I was like, Hey, uh, here's what I'm working on. You can see exactly where I am. And, you know, I, I'm just very, very forward in there. I try to make it, I try to spruce it up a little. Like I'll add sc- screenshots of like things I'm working on, even though they're not for me, they're just sort of in there so they can see, you know? Yeah. And then, um, you know, it's just simple, you know, three or four columns in progress, you know, questions completed inbox, whatever that's, you know, four columns or whatever. Um, nothing fancy. It's not, it's not a big project. There's not a lot to do, but just helpful to have that transparency that like, Hey, I know I've been radio silent for two or three months, but really, okay. Now I'm actually gonna, you actually be able to, it's accountability is really what it comes down to. Yeah. Kind of, and trust. It builds trust with them too. We're working on, um, signing a new scope of work with them. So I think that came out of not like, not just to me, like testament to me, but also I inherited this project from another team or another team lead. But, um, we've gotten good feedback so far with how we're running the project and they're happy. So they're looking to sign another, you know, six to 10 months of work. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, to circle back to rails really quick. Cause I had this question. I, uh, I need to dig back into rails soon anyway for, you know, metal lab does standardize API work. If we get it in rails, if we can choose the stack. And so I need to spend some time in there just to become more familiar uh, or, you know, bring my knowledge up to speed because I haven't really used Rails in a few years. And uh, so I spun up a new project, API only project. I started looking at uh, the gem files and then trying to remember the gems I used to use for building APIs. And it was, I don't want to say troubling is not the right word. It was, I was surprised. So like, I go, my old, my old faithful for building APIs, uh, was or like the views for it was um active model serializers i never used jbuilder or anything like that and so i looked at the ams repository and they're like it's just it's just frozen in time i was like what this it doesn't look to be any different than it had been uh and yeah and so you know rails just like just use jbuilder it comes in the gem file when you scaffold a new rails app right so my question is what like what do you what do you do? It doesn't seem like you use JBuilder. It doesn't seem like you use active model serializers. Uh, I looked and there are like, a, you know, of course, dozens of other 
hey, here's Grape, or here's this DSL you can use, or here's this other thing. We make it so easy for you. But my question is, what does Rockwell Schrock use? Uh, Rockwell Schrock <laughs> doesn't use anything because his Rails apps are just plain old controller server rendered applications. So <laughs> I haven't done a Rails API app in ever. <laughs> besides whatever I'm doing in remote ham radio, which is so old, yeah. I would could not recommend it. Or I don't even remember what it is. It's probably, it was either JBuilder or one of the other DSLs for defining, you know, converting uh, things to JSON. I don't remember specifically which one. And uh, I would not recommend doing that way anyways. Phoenix views have just converted me over to the fact that like, just use a function, generate a map and just blast it out there. Like don't yeah. tie it to your model. Don't tie it to, uh, don't use a DSL. Just, just define. Just, just. Oh God, just write code, man. In Rails, how would you not tie it to a model, though? How would it not be tied to a model in Rails? Well, not one to one. Like it's okay. Yeah, you're you're outputting model data, but like don't directly serialize an active record model or active model or whatever the the mix in is called. Like active model serializers. Well, it's it's kind of a misnomer because it doesn't just straight up serialize your models. It just gives you that presentation layer. So you can actually configure like Again, all right, too too yeah. much too much circumstance. Generate a map or hash in Ruby. Generate arrays, convert to JSON. Done. That's what I would do. I'm going to I'm going to make Renix. That's Phoenix for for Ruby. Man, I I will say I I get so I really miss some of Phoenix's patterns away. They just, they do web stuff, like forget about context and functional programming and whatever, but the way plugs work, the way uh, routing works, like all that stuff is so burned in my brain now. It's so hard to go to rails and be like, Oh, I can just add a plug and Oh, I can't do that. It's a controller and you got to do hooks and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like it's so much magical. Yeah. I, yeah. It's same for me too. Like when I'm looking at these, like there's so many express derivative sort of frameworks, right? Or like based on express or most of them try to be plug and play with express middleware. And so that's in my mind, like, oh, this is just like a plug. Like I see middleware as being something similar to a plug. It is. In, in yeah. That world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like you're saying, I sort of relate these concepts that I know about making web apps back to Phoenix because that was such, I feel like that was one of the first frameworks that I really knew like I didn't really, like really, really know Rails in in a sense, but uh, I feel like I was really comfortable and proficient with with Phoenix. So I still come back to those concepts. So I'm thinking about looking. I look at a framework and I'm like looking at what it offers. I'm like, okay, this is like plug. This is like that other thing. You know, trying to make equivalencies there. Yeah, I I don't know if it's just how I learn things, but every time I go back to Rails, and I said this over and over again. I just I just feel so productive. I just get in there, just move at light speed as fast as you can type. You can do stuff, get in, get out. It's fine, and it's like honestly great. Um, I know we like to you know do the Rails versus Phoenix thing a lot, but really, uh, when it comes down to it, just uh, I'm I'm on Rails five point one. You know, I'm writing mm -hmm. it like it's Rails three. You know, in my head. You know, I'm not using any of the fancy features. It's just great. It's just great, man. Like I knew I had to add a new concept to the application. So I just create the model, write a CSV importer, rake task, import a bunch of data, uh, generate an admin CRUD view for it, roll it right into this, you know, this existing huge calculation by just making a few changes. And like, it was fine. It was great. You know, um, I just, uh, that, that feeling just still has not gone away for me. 
Is uh, is that because you spend a lot of time with Rails and you sort of internalized it, or is there something specific to Rails that makes it ergonomically friendly to you? The experience is definitely part of it, for sure, right? But also, I don't write Rails apps like I used to. You know, my sort of other experiences informed how I design them and write the you know underlying code and think about controllers and you know lib code, you know things that really are business logic and so on. But so. Part of his experience and part of it is just really just the tooling is very good, you know? Sure. Active record, the core of it, you know, uh, there's lots of gotchas, but, you know, if you can avoid N plus one problems, if you can avoid, uh, if you know how to just, do you know where all the sharp edges are and you just do the minimal thing to avoid them? And uh, all the other tooling is great. You know, deployments are obviously easy, whether you're doing Daku or Classic 6 or Heroku, right? Like that's all perfectly well baked. Uh, migrations, database support, uh, rendering APIs, rendering controllers. I even actually started rolling Vue.js into this Rails application. Very, very small uh, increments. I didn't want to bring in Webpacker because it's not in there. I really don't want to bring it in. So I actually used your technique where I included just the Vue.js runtime. as just like a static file. Mm-hmm. This is all still uh, pre-Webpacker. I'm just using the uh, regular asset pipeline, sprockets or whatever. So the Vue.js runtime write a Vue.js template sort of like inline in, in my Rails templates. And then just it just runs it at runtime. Because I needed some like fancy kind of form controls and I didn't want to write plain JS, but I didn't want Webpack. So I just uh, did runtime Vue.js 2 point whatever. And uh, it's great. So that like, it took a little bit of figuring to figure out how to like get props in and get things formatted and just, just you know, make it happy. Because you don't have... um you know, imports and all the Webpack niceness, ES6 and whatever. Have you ever heard of uh, Inertia.js? Inertia? No, I haven't. Take a second and look at the the page. Uh, I think you might find this interesting. You're either going to love it or hate it. <laughs> it's going to be one of the two. Um, but anyway, I think like Laravel really is kind of leading a charge in a way in kind of like keeping the server-side stuff alive like that, but still making conveniences or allowances for adding Vue or React into your project. Uh, and when you scaffold, I mean, so I watched actually uh, Taylor Otwell, one of the creators of Laravel, he he was doing a live stream on YouTube and they did like this jet, thing, jet stream recently and a lot of people were throwing a fit about it. So he was like addressing concerns on YouTube. And one of the things he was saying is, yeah, Laravel does scaffold Vue support out of the box, but it's not production ready. You shouldn't use that stuff in production. Uh, and then he started talking more about inertia, which I've heard heard of in the past. Um, but for people that are listening, inertia basically is so like Rock, what you were talking about pulling view into your 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 uh, templates, your Rails rendered templates, and so you kind of have to do a lot of gluing back and forth together, right? You have to you have to be the one to take your model data, serialize it to JSON, stuff it into view, and then collect it on the view side, <laughs> and then do what you need to it. Yeah, you've been down this road before. Yes. So yeah, inertia is uh, something that supposedly handles all of that glue for you. So instead of rendering a Rails view, um, the examples show you Laravel, but it works. There's a Rails adapter. Um, the examples show you instead of instead of rendering a Rails template in your controller, you just render an inertia view, and that basically takes the props for whatever view page component that you want to render, and it does all the gluing for you. I think this. I think this is great. Okay, I think this is great, and here's why. Right. So, this type of thing could go uh, the merging 
the uh not merging the sort of coalescing of rails and modern js it's a problem it comes with webpack and webpacker that is just seemed like a nightmare i haven't touched it in rail 6 yet whatever you could go the uh fully ruby route where you use like uh what's it called opal i think yeah opal yep. opal the and like convert ruby into directly into react i've done that just for a fun side project that oh was <laughs> it was mind-blowingly cool because like literally i would write pure ruby classes and just include them like just to require you know whatever class or module and they would just run in javascript hmm. that that blew my mind right like <laughs> it did work but then you're also writing like react components using this ruby dsl it was cool, but uh, not sustainable. This is cool because it's just, like you said, it's glue, and that you're still writing the native, you still get the full power and escape hatches and everything associated with Vue, but this is just tying everything together. You get the Ruby end, you get the Vue end, and then, yeah, this is just the, gets rid of all the pop and circumstance with doing that. So yeah, I think this is, it, it seems like I'm just clicking through the docs here for installation and stuff. It looks like there's a little bit of complexity with sort of, uh, it looks like it ties its roots in pretty deeply with some of these things, but I don't, I don't see that really being a problem if you're if you're all in on this, anyways. I think this is this is pretty cool. So basically, this would be a, a alternative to like uh, doing something like Nuxt, right? Yes. Yep. So so it doesn't, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't do server side rendering or SSR uh, currently. Um, but yeah, this is basically if you didn't want to. If you wanted to build a project and you wanted to use React or Vue or whatever your team might like already understand and be comfortable with, uh, but you didn't want to do like the multi-project, multi-repo, multi-deployment strategy, right? You kind of wanted to keep it tight. Um, this That's what this is for. So yeah, you can let your front end run with Vue and then let your back end run with Laravel or Rails or whatever you want to use. I actually, on Twitter, I talked briefly with the creator about creating a Phoenix adapter for this as well. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I guess, yeah, it depends on how complex that would be. Yeah, it's uh, all the other adapters, the Rails one and Laravel one are open source. So, um, you know, you could look at it, but yeah, I... Uh, it, it would it would be basically like a replacement where somebody wants a spa or needs a spa. You have a team that's familiar with Vue or React, and you don't necessarily want to go the two project route, two deployment route. Um, you can bring the two worlds together here and not have to worry about doing all the glue like you're talking about. Yeah, this is cool. For my use case, where I just have a form component here or there, you know, as long as it stays like that, uh, I'm fine with what I've got. You know, mm -hmm. I just I really just didn't want to write because I I uh, I could just write in. Plain old JS. Plain old JS is pretty powerful now, but I just saw myself going down that rabbit hole and think dealing with all the edge cases. But basically, it's a form control with a sort of lookup. So you you type something, debounces it, fetches an API, you know, fills in the rest of the form with some response, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Location lookup is really what it's doing. You type in an address and it it does a you know lookup on the Google Maps API, does a lookup on the database, fills out the rest of your form with some stuff, and so like. Uh, that kind of stuff where it's just, you just, I just needed that extra complexity and I knew it was going to be, uh, you know, I could see from A to Z in view. So this is cool though. If you really wanted to go all in, I don't see, uh, this is a cool tool, but like, would I actually want to write an application this way? Like, do I need every page of my application to be a view page? I guess that's the beauty of it though. Like you could just do plain old server rendered if you want to. Yeah. But for the more complex stuff, you could just sprinkle in, sprinkle in view pages. 
you could it, you could render inertia views only when you want to do that. Yeah, this is cool. This is cool. It's a it's a weird times we live in. It is. I was trying to remember again. You know, picking up rails and then going back at gems we used to use. Uh, did you ever use the Gon gem? G O N. No, I haven't. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna. <laughs> this is a throwback, but uh, so basically, this is a way to give your JS preview pre react uh access or information about like your state, right? So with gone in in a controller, uh you could just say gone dot something and then that would eventually get added to uh an object that's just put on the page. So you have one giant object with all your <laughs> gone things and then your JS can access it because it's globally available. See, this is a great idea. You don't need a gem for this. Like I can just, I could write a function, a helper function to do this and it's fine. You know, uh, yeah. just the concept is cool. I, I never thought about this. I always end up using raw, whatever to JSON, you know, and just it, interpolating that directly in there, which I know is off probably awful and full of, uh, you know, security concerns, but. Well, so, I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of being a throwback, like, wow, we've come so far from just chucking everything or chucking things you need in your JS to, like, something globally available on the page and then letting them bit dip into it. But then I'm remembering, like, looking at the source of a Nux app, and I'm like, uh, it's basically that, <laughs> like, for initial renders, right? Oh, yeah. for Yeah, forget it. It's, it's, it's the same thing. If you're not using the new uh, full static, it's just doing the same thing. It's just the same thing. So yeah, everything every, well, everything old is new again, I guess. Uh, it's funny. A friend of mine is learning Python. He's doing a course. And he said, I'm coming up on a co- the part of the course where they want us to start like scraping data from web pages just to like learn how to, I guess, do web requests and maybe regular expressions or whatever. Or maybe, uh, you know, HTML or XML parser or whatever. So he's like, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be scraping some pages. And, you know, I was just going to use your personal web page. For scraping, you know, rockwellshark.com. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I had to stop and think for a second. I'm like, okay, I know it's a Nux stat, but I forgot. I couldn't remember if I got static working or not, right? <laughs> so I was right. like, you might, there might be nothing to scrape there. <laughs> it could just be pure JavaScript. But uh, because I am using the static rendering, it's ugly HTML, but there is real HTML there. <sighs> just tripped down memory lane now. I'm just thinking about all these gems I used to use. It is weird how some of the gems are just frozen in time. Yeah, that's what was the strangest thing to me. I was like, I, I got, I went from zero to one hundred really quickly, having you know my model set up, my DB looking the way that I wanted it to, and then I was like, okay, if I don't want to use JBuilder, what do I use? And then instantly hit a wall, like immediately. Okay, the thing I used to use is kind of like recommending, hey, don't do this. We're still in a rewrite, but the rewrite hasn't finished in however many years, and. uh I guess like libraries I'm looking for, I'm looking for more of a consensus or a large group of people saying, yeah, this is a route to go. And then, you know, if I'm doing that, I'm following, I'm following into grape and then I'm like, okay, well, this is a whole thing. This, this is a very much DSL that kind of transforms everything from the down. Like you have to learn something completely new for this. It's not just, you know, tossing a new view layer in or something. So just ran into a brick wall and stopped working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Choice paralysis, man. It's real. It's real. Yeah. What I did do, though, was the next week I spun up a Phoenix app and it felt good, felt productive. <laughs> but then, you know, I used the generators uh, and and then um, as soon as I like added Ex Machina, I had to like tear out all of the tests that were generated because they're all like 
the attributes are hard coded in, right? So if you run the the generators and then you have to go back and change a column name or something, well, then you have to go through and update all the tests by hand. It's kind of a, a pain. You know what I do uh, when I generate like a new model and you know how it like generates the tests and the fixtures and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. I just delete it. Oh, I was about to ask, like, is there a flag? <laughs> no, you no, just delete it. I just don't check it in. <laughs> So speaking of Phoenix, uh, I mentioned I'm also working on a Phoenix client project. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's still in the very new phases. It's not done by any stretch. But I wanted to demo it to the client tomorrow. And I'm thinking like, oh, I could just do um, ngrok, right? I could just run it locally and just share with them. But in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm going to have to put this in production at some point. I might as well just spend the time and put it on a real server somewhere so we can go poke around at it. Fine. Uh, I still have my little DigitalOcean Docu instance, tiny instance, you know, whatever, one gigabyte, uh, running with a managed DigitalOcean database, created a new app. I took meticulous notes last time I did this, thank God, because <laughs> I just went in, blasted in all the config files I needed to for Docu. I missed a couple in my notes, but now I think they're complete. Uh, you know, I missed some database configs and stuff. Created a new database. Uh, I even actually imported my, because the database is very big there's like millions of rows in it so i just instead of having to churn through that data i actually did like a db dump and db restore Mm -hmm. from my dev machine to production (laughs) and uh that was faster than uploading the two gig zip file and then processing it man docu phoenix let's encrypt digitalocean postgres uh doing the you know it, it has a Vue.js front end you know using webpack all that stuff just freaking works all faithful just works great man yeah it's uh that's it's a great new powerful stack for me and yeah you know it took me it i, I took me exactly an hour because i uh i had an hour it was eight o'clock and the vice presidential debate started at nine and i sat down on the couch and i was like i'm gonna get this done before the debate starts Sat down, 8 o'clock. By 9 o'clock, I had it basically done. That's great. So, like, that's uh, couldn't take really much less time and is also insanely cheap. And, you know, this is a this is like a staging server. It's just dev. I don't need whatever. Um, but uh, if I needed to scale it up or do it again, it's easy. I just install Docu and away I go, right? Just use the same process. Installing Docu is easy. Have you, have you looked at uh, DigitalOcean's app platform at all? So, I know that was just announced this week. I have not looked yeah. at it at all yet. Um, I mean, it looks pretty, I don't know, like I would say similar to Heroku in, in that how it, that's how it functions, but obviously not nearly the offering that Heroku is. It's like $2 cheaper because I think Dino's, the cheapest Dino is like 7 bucks, and the cheapest, uh, I don't know, instance for for the DigitalOcean platform, I think it was $5. Yeah, DigitalOcean's big thing has always been the pricing, right? I mean, they were the first ones to have $5 VPSs. Uh, Full disclosure, former sponsor of the show, not currently sponsor of the show, but we do still love DigitalOcean. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's going to be hard to compete with Heroku if you can't get significantly cheaper than them. I, I, I got to imagine, I think someone brought this up in our chat, I forget who, I'm sorry, that this is obviously an outcome of them buying up Nanobox, right? Uh, Yeah, that's probably a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's got to be. I, I think, I mean, like, yeah, it would be hard to beat you know, Heroku, because there's, their offerings are so mature, but also I think for teams that already are all on a digital ocean or have whatever, you know, maybe you, you might be using Docker and then you, you have another project spin up. This, this could be an option to keep you in the same arena, I guess. Yeah. And what's, this really starts to 
pull them away from Linode, right? Like Linode and DigitalOcean were kind of had feature parity for a while. You know, you could one had managed database before the other. They both kind of had load balancers at the same time. They always had cheap VPSs. You know, DigitalOcean had cheap ones first. Then Linode had really fast and cheap ones also, right? Like that that competition has always kind of been there. They're always kind of neck and neck. Uh, but when the and did the Linode had uh, stack scripts. You ever played with stack scripts on Linode? I I did not. Um, Laravel or what's it called? Laravel Forge has something similar where you can kind of make scripts that you can rerun on servers. Yes, yeah, so yeah, but this is basically like a way of yeah arbitrarily building a stack, right? Just kind of like cloud formation or one of those kind of you know uh, HashiCorp, not Packer. Docker before Docker. <laughs> yeah, kind of, but you're doing with VMs, right? Linode had that, but that's kind of primitive compared to you know modern solutions. Although I you know thought it was great, but it's just kind of you're kind of stuck frozen in time when you do a stack server. Like you build the stack and that's it. Like yeah. don't touch it, don't breathe on it. <laughs> right. But th- this uh, having this app platform really really pulls them away from 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 Linode. I think. I think you can even do like two or three static sites for free, and then additional static sites after that are like three bucks a month. That's cool. That's cool. Static sites, huh? Mm-hmm. Might check that out. Just play with it. Yeah. Uh, so while we're on topic of things that we've found useful lately, uh, this project I'm working on now, part of part of the work is done by the client, the API, and then part of the, the UI that we're building, the API is not actually finished yet. So uh, we previously had a mock API server that was written in Python. And it works fine, but you have to mess around with Webpack proxies and stuff to be able to proxy some URL requests to the mock API and then some to the staging server and all that. Uh, so I found a tool called uh, Mirage. And, you know, Paul was working on something a while back where it was basically mock API stuff, right? He was, I forget how long he worked on it before, but um, I came across this back then and I'd un- like from whenever it was like months ago, I just couldn't remember the name of this thing up until like last week. And then I found it. So basically Mirage, uh, it lets you build mock APIs and, uh, you do it, you, you do it with JS. So in whatever project you're, you're working on, you just start up a new server. And then, uh, when you make API requests to that endpoint, it'll just return, you know, mock data. Uh, but it actually has sort of a, an in-memory database uh, set up going. And so you can actually configure, like, here's my model, here are relationships. And you can actually basically use it to create, you know, actually, like, you make your post requests, your updates requests work, make your um, views where you're, you know, maybe you have nested relationships being rendered and stuff like that. Um, it's all configured with Mirage. And then you can actually set up seeds right you can plug in faker if you want but you can have seeds that that are generated when the server starts up and then as uh as the uh you know as you're swapping out the mock requests with the real requests you just kind of you know change the the root url however you want to environment variables whatever for just a subset of your requests and you don't have to worry about it anymore so you don't have to worry about like a third party like if you're writing js you don't have to worry about remembering how to write python to update stuff because that was fun for me like having to go change the python api and i'm like i don't know python i'm i'm looking at they have this little animated gif screen recording on their page for mirage js yeah and it's kind of blowing my mind I'm, i'm watching it as you're explaining it and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like they're somehow monkey patching the fetch function in JavaScript. Like I don't even know, man. This is wild. 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty cool. It's really it's it's really useful. So like you're talking about doing demos, which is what reminded me of this because I have to do demos every two weeks, uh, and then I've had to do some uh, more non routine demos lately. So I had to record a video that they're using to hopefully help secure funding, more funding. And then I had to record uh, a video for their basically like bosses, bosses. And, uh, yeah, so I basically just pulled in Mirage and swapped out a couple of the endpoints that I needed to make work and then record the video and we were good to go. Yeah. For this demo I have tomorrow, I, I have the UI sort of, stubbed out in view just the data's not there right so i'm kind of concerned that when i do this demo tomorrow that it's not going to be clear to the users like why isn't it working right or like like where's all the data or you know why isn't it complete and it's like well okay i started it this is a work in progress we still have to you know do the rest of the stuff and it's like having this sort of mock data i think would be it's hard it's hard to it's hard to get uh, a client the same mindset that you're in like it's okay it's going to be there trust me like we can everything is possible to be changed that's the whole point but yeah if you're not seeing it in front of you it's it's like looking at a car and you're like where's the wheels how come it doesn't have wheels it's gonna have wheels right right yeah that was one thing that we i I kept on having to ask the the other the client team to do is like hey can you rerun your seed scripts for staging because uh the mock api stuff that was set up in python doesn't support any like creating or updating it just supports like like listing right so the trouble is then, okay, how do you actually finish building out the portions of your API that are actually mutating information, mutating data, right? So then then when you connect it to staging and you're testing it and you're finding bugs and fixing and you run out of seed data, what do you do? You know, so so uh, yeah, that's what, I think that's what Mirage would be useful for me as well because Mirage allows you, it has the in-memory database running. It actually does like foreign keys and stuff like that. Um, so it would actually allow me to actually test like, okay, since we're using React Query, React Query keeps caches of everything. So let's say you land on a dashboard and you get three lists of uh, tasks, let's say. Um, and when you mutate one of the lists, all we really have to do is invalidate that cache so React Query fetches for new information and the re- lists rebuild themselves, right? So we don't actually have to like do any like event or notifying or like telling something else to, Hey, go get this information or like passing updated prop or something like that. We just invalidate the cache react query updates itself. Okay. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, if you just hook it up to staging the first time and it doesn't work and you run out of data it, with using Mirage, you could actually have it work. You could have it, um, uh, see that, update the payload, invalidate the cache, and the UI would actually like update itself accordingly. So you can test the full stack, right? Full yeah, flow. but at some point, you're just recreating <laughs> the business logic in the mock. And at that point, why don't you use the real thing? Because it doesn't exist, and we have no timeline as to when it will exist. Oh, you you have to... Okay, I see. Yeah. You have to make it exist and then wait for it to actually exist. Yeah, so if it, the API existed, I would rather use that. Or if I had like some sort of... Watson. Sorry, he just grabbed my headphone cord. Little punk. Uh, if I had some sort of guarantee that, you know, I could have seed data generated on a daily basis, that'd be fine too, you know, because then I just wouldn't have empty lists sitting around <laughs> or like empty dashboards sitting around. Uh, but I can't control any of that stuff. Uh, so the team that we're working with, the client, they're working on two other projects at the same time. So they're like, just, you know, tradi- like typical startup stuff. They're just burning the candle at both ends. So... I, I, while I can say, Hey, can you get me seed data? There's no guarantee that it'll actually will happen. 
So Mirage allows me to sort of take it, uh, take control of that in a way that I know how, because it was very simple to learn. And otherwise I would have to learn Python or learn more Python and take over this, this other thing and then have to build in like, you know, the ability to add things to it. And right now it's all pulling data from JSON files. That would even, that wouldn't even be a thing that I could add to it. So Mirage really fit that need for me. <laughs> well, let's be honest. You should be learning Python anyways, right? Uh, I hear TypeScript is the future. No, man. It's all about Python with type hinting. Oh, you my. types in Python. They're kind of fake, but you can, you can have them in there. PHP has type hinting too, you know? Mm-hmm. So does Elixir kind of? Kind of. I, I never really liked Dialyzer, to be honest. No, it's garbage. So Ducky uh, Drew in our chat says Cold Fusion is going to make a comeback. Bring it back. Let's go. Cold Fusion, I'm ready. I'll be the first to lead that revolution. Well, maybe one day uh, you'll have New Jersey calling out, calling you in for help. New Jersey? Uh, wasn't there a thing in the news where uh, I'm pretty sure it was New Jersey was like sending out a plea for COBOL developers? <laughs> I'm serious. Let me look this up. The funny thing is that the COBOL is not the downsides. The fact that you have to work for New Jersey. Thanks. I'll be here all night. Let me see here. Uh, the coronavirus crisis has sparked all manner of unexpected consequences, including the Tokyo Summer Olympics. In New Jersey, it's resulted in something that few people outside the state's tech department would have foreseen, a dire need for COBOL programmers. Their need. Uh, oh, experts were needed to fix the COBOL-based unemployment insurance systems. And when COVID hit, it got overwhelmed. And so I remember seeing that in the uh, in the news, like, "Hey, we need Cobal help now!" Wow, yeah, wild. Have you ever looked at Cobal code? Wait, didn't I say? Didn't I share a few weeks ago that Cloudflare uh, supports Cobal now on their edge, their workers? Oh yeah, wild. I looked at code and it it blew my mind. And then I closed the file really quickly. <laughs> it's not even April first. I don't get it. No. Going back to this. Uh, this this mirage stuff what's really interesting so i was talking with my coach this last week we have a weekly call where she's like are you okay and i'm like yeah i'm okay that's like the you know the the gist of it like if i need help i can say that but she's also just making sure that i'm feeling you know good and have what i need and all that stuff and uh so i'm (laughs) the last conversation i had with her was was really it's just funny that it dawned on me but most of the stuff that I feel like I struggle with are things that I normally would have been doing myself in my old job, uh, where now I have to rely on other people to do them. You're struggling because I am used to just doing all the things. And, and so if I'm not the one doing it, sometimes it's like out of sight, out of mind. Like I have to leave those meticulous notes that I was talking about or, uh, you know, remember to pass on bits of context that they might be aware of and, uh, like keep the train running, right? Like before, like, uh, like I think last week we were talking about if I'm not programming, no one's programming. So the train stops, but now, uh, there are people programming whether or not I'm sitting in front of my desk. So the train, you know, I got to keep the plates spinning. The train has to keep going. Uh, that means that I got to just spend more time in Jira because they're moving too fast, but no, it's really more like looking at APIs that we don't have any control over. It, it's interesting that, you know, no shots being fired, but it's interesting that uh, the headers say that it's powered by Express. And then I'm noticing all sorts of strange things or things that I would expect to not happen. So 
in every API I've built with like either Rails or Phoenix, um, I make sure to scrub like empty params that are sent to me, right? Uh, like your server, if you get an empty param sent to you and your server doesn't know what to do with it, you probably shouldn't like throw a 500 because of that. <laughs> yeah, so like I'm noticing all these like little inconsistencies and I can't fix them. Or like, hey, that shouldn't be a get, that should be a post or just things like that. I'm, I'm so used to just like noticing and changing and now I can't do any of that. And it's like, I have to wait a whole week before something happens, something changes, you know? Yeah. The delegation, that's always been, I've never been good at that, man. You, like, you know, you could just go in and do it. That's the most frustrating part. Like you're like, oh, I could just, just, just let me in there. Just let me go do it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Nope. Not your job. Not your responsibility. You got other things to on your plate, on your spinning plates. Yeah, yeah. And really I think my big takeaway from this week is I am the I am the the scope creep captain. I am watching for scope creep. I'm observing for it and I'm exterminating it when I find it. Cuz no one else can do it. I I'm the one that has to do that and it has to be a forefront. Of, so you know I really enjoy working with designers, like having a designer that I work with again. Uh, I'm really glad that I'm not the one that has to figure out the UX things. I'm not good at it. It's not my forte. Um, but I'm starting to 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 like have a list of words that I listen for in design reviews or pitches mm-hmm. to or like design reviews with clients, especially. You have like a buzzword bingo where you like you know if someone says that word that that it sort of implies a it's an implied feature request something like that. Yeah, I so one of them is it might be nice if. <laughs> That's a big danger, one. danger. That's like the biggest red flag, right? I love it. You should compile a list of these and tweet it out. This is great. Well, it's just my reaction is <laughs> it's so funny. So I'm actually like I'm learning that I can actually change the process and make it my own process and some trying to shore up some of these things where, you know, our only design review isn't just like with the one, the one with the clients and stuff. Um, but yeah, it just like my initial reaction when I heard that, I was like, it might be nice if, and I was like, Oh, what, what? And I like, like really like lean into the monitor, look at the Figma closer, see what's happening, see what I'm about to have to like break down, uh, to the client. It's like when, when you say, uh, like the word walk and Watson's around, right? Like his ears perk up and he looks at you with those, with those steely eyes. He doesn't know words. Sure, he does. He knows he doesn't. walk. He knows squirrel. He doesn't. Watson, do you want to go outside? He didn't even look at me. He's laying like right here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the, I'm, I'm the guardian of scope creep and 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 uh, things like that. So that's great. It's good to be that guy. This designer has come up with some good ideas for their business. It's just now's not the time that we need to be implementing or discussing those ideas. So, so here's the trick, though. We had a guy when I was at Agilent who was he wasn't even on my team but he was i think he was higher up in the chain he was he was a very good developer very smart but he also was kind of like the gatekeeper right mm-hmm. like if there was a big thing like he would he didn't review code change with you one on one but if he saw something he didn't like like he's coming to your desk right yeah and uh he was just had a very straightforward uh, no BS attitude, right? Which comes off as scary, right? It comes off as like, not even bullying, but uh, I'm searching for the right word. But it's like, you know, you you kind of like are scary of scared of that guy because you don't want to do something to offend him or like do something that's not kosher. But at the same time, like he's, his role is totally necessary because it's the 
the you know only source of order in this chaos of dozens of developers committing to this big you know c sharp repository right mm. uh, and and it's 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 not just like little things like code style he's not going to nitpick but he's like large architectural decisions why did you do this what's the point of this etc right so so architectural stuff and so i think the the trick there is walking that line between uh you know drawing the line in the sand having a firm hand but also like not being a dick about it right yeah, like yeah, don't, yeah. you don't you don't want people to fear you you just want them to respect you <laughs> well i have a i have a notion doc where we write down these ideas and that's where they stay so Drew in the chat is asking, have you heard the term gold plating? I'm finding that right now. The client's revisions are really just requests for, requests for additional functionality. Uh, yes, 100%. I've never heard it called gold plating before, but I am very familiar with that. Gold plating. What is, I'm not getting the meaning of that. Although revision is kind of, yeah, I can see that being a spin on feature request. That's why we don't, um, well, I don't know that's exactly why we don't use the term revisions with the clients, but we have... Oh, gold pleading meaning the thing is done, but they want it quote oh, nicer. I see. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. And it, it it's especially tough because it's like it's done. It's just you just gotta tweak it, right? It should be easy. Yeah. Do you have? I mean, do you have someone that you can point them back to that manages the the scope or not the scope, but the statement of work? Because that's what I would do in my in that situation. I would say something like, well, okay, to do that, then we're ta- we're, I have to go talk to the person that is in charge of the scope of work, also known as the person that's going to charge you more money. That's what ended up happening? Yeah, yeah. That's what I would have done too. Basically, you better open up that wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully, I mean, I the, like, the projects I've been on so far haven't... I, the one project I've been on so far hasn't been like that. There's been a pretty tight sa- like statement of work, and... um they're you know we're they haven't pushed back on anything they they're almost too easy they're like yeah it looks great sounds great reasoning makes sense works for us i don't know if it's because they're so busy on the other side things are you know they're going around and trying to get funding and or additional funding and dealing with actual client or customers and you know well i I don't know about how you guys do things but whenever i provide a estimate to a client i always tack on like 20 percent at least of like unanticipated feature requests. And I just put it right in the quote. I'm just like, stuff's going to come up. We're not going to expect it. You're going to have ideas. We're going to want to do stuff. I'm just budgeting in there up front so that you can, you know, get the purchase order or, you know, anticipate that cost. Like mm-hmm. I just build that right in. Cause I know that scope creep is real and I just kind of budget for some amount of it. And that seems to work. Like I haven't had anyone balk at that at all. So that's been nice. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I am involved in an estimation project right now, but I haven't really done any of the overall time uh, things beyond just looking at what the devs going to take. So that's been an interesting process because I've never worked on it at this scale before. But yeah, basically, like I got some flowcharts and I made it into a spreadsheet and it turned it into epics and then put down like how uncertain I was about a certain feature and how many hours I thought it might take. So the uncertainty column was basically a color from like tan to red, right? Or like, you know, uh, differing opacities or uh, what do you call, what would you say? Saturations of red, the dark, darker red, the more I didn't know about a feature. So like a heat map, heat map. Yeah, it was a heat map. Dark reds are trouble, trouble, bad, bad. So when everything's red, nothing's red, Sean. 
Well, it felt like, so I did that, then we had a call, right? So I basically wrote a notion with all of my comment or my questions. And then we had a call with the client and I felt like I was deposing them or something because I was just like question after question, after question, after question. And their whole team is there, like their CTO, their COO is there, their, you know, everyone's there. And I'm like, all right, when you say this, what do you mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. So I dread those calls, man. Well, I mean, the client's thinking about requirements. They just want the, the thing to work. You're thinking about the implementation details, and that's a really big disconnect. Yeah, it's almost, I'm like almost a month and a half in now. Feels weird. Wow, it's been that long, huh? Yeah. Cool. Congrats, man. Just like you're, you're just getting, just getting fired up. Yeah, just getting started. I think I have like two months left on this project too. Oh my god. And then another, another possible ten months if they sign. <laughs> I think I don't know what project I get put on, but ten months. Yeah, Watson's giving me the eyes, though. I suppose we should. When is he not giving you the eyes? Um, well, he is now because now he he realized what time it is. He's looking at me like, "What do you want?" <laughs> His tail is wagging, but he's not moving. Well, if anybody knows or has thoughts on how to serialize their Rails data into JSON, let me know. If you're gonna recommend JBuilder or Active Model Serializer. Don't bother writing. But if you have another suggestion, you can tweet us on Twitter at DNCCast. Sean is Sean Washbot, and I am Shrockwell. As always, show notes will be available at DNC.show. So everything we talked about today, including JBuilder and Active Model Serializers, will be linked there. We're also talking about JBuilder and Active Model Serializer on Twitch <laughs> every Thursday. It's all we talk about. Twitch.tv slash DNCCast, Thursday night, 6 Pacific, 9 p.m., Eastern, come for the Rails Gem Talks. Stay for cute Watson staring you down. Look at those eyes, man. He wants to go outside. Oh wait, does he recognize outside? Outside? There outside. it is. Look at him. Look at him. He learned his first word. He heard it here. Everybody, you saw it. Outside. Oh, now now you're committed. You better let him outside. Outside. He's giving me the dead eyes. He has this way of staring at me like I don't think he cares if I'm alive or dead. He's going to rip you up like that lobster toy. He could. Uh, thanks to Spec.fm for having us, putting us out in the world. And if you're into other design development related podcasts, head over to Spec.fm and check them out. And thanks to Watson for not ripping out Sean's jugular just yet. Just, let's get a few more episodes out of him and then you can bite him in his sleep. I wake up at night sometimes and he's looking at me like this. He's too cute. Talk to you in a week. All right, man. See ya. See ya.